speaking more about and what I think people don't speak enough about is the financial element. I think there's a lot of theory selling. There's a lot of work in you know, political theorizing, media personalities, but understanding how the hell we actually build a parallel structure financially, how we actually insulate organizations from leftist takeover, right? With the actual corporate structure of things, with the actual leadership and management from the inside. So it's good to speak to you today about those subjects. You know. That is uh, that is what we spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time working on here. So uh, not a solved problem, but one that I think offers a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So maybe you can go a bit into where it's uh, how it's come from where you began and how it's developed where you are now, because you've been going for a while now. So what are the changes you've seen uh, in the developments of both the companies and yourself um, and yourself in your development of the of what you're you you being CEO of New Founding, how yes. that's changed for you as well? Yeah, sure. I uh, that's uh, that's a good place to start. So. My background was business. It was uh, I've always been interested in politics, but in some sense, I saw politics as uh, an uninteresting place and a place that was not a uh, not a place that offered a lot of leverage for real change mm. uh, back when I was in college, when I was in law school. So I went into business because I knew in investing, if you have a non-consensus but correct opinion, that offered mm. the opportunity for uh, for very large profits. So uh, my background. Uh, just quick overview there. I uh, started out of law school, partnered with a classmate, started buying distressed apartment buildings in Florida and Texas. And uh, this was in 2011. And our thesis was fundamentally that uh, there was a lot of distress there, but fundamental demographic trends were very, very positive for those states. Uh, yeah. Pro-business, good places to raise a family, et cetera. Uh, we built a company, bought about 7,000 over three years, 7,000 apartments, and uh, built a uh, fairly large management team, a few hundred people. And that was uh, really the background, the foundation. It certainly paid off. Uh, it paid off more than I think we we even had any right to count on as the Fed continued to print money and mm. saw a lot of asset inflation. Uh, but as that trade matured in 2014, uh, I started looking at the next thing. And because I, I wasn't a real estate guy for life, for me, it was what is the opportunity that offers yeah. what what, it, what offers that outsized opportunity for a return for asymmetric uh, payoff. Uh, and ended up working on a number of things, but really uh, what was the recurring theme was this question of trust and the nature of trust, the dynamics of trust, uh, how technology is changing trust. Uh, did a lot of travel, actually visited 65 countries uh, in 2015, mm -hmm. early 2016, talked to a lot of people in all those countries uh, and the with actually my wife and my first kid uh, who was six months old when we began. But really the the question that we kept asking, that I kept asking was, uh, what are the opportunities and what are the patterns we see around the world? And unfortunately, mm. I think the disturbing thing is a lot of the patterns that we saw in third world countries are patterns that we increasingly see in the U.S. as mm. the U.S. trends toward what a lower trust society looks like. Yeah. Uh, and coming through coming through the investing world, it was really during the Trump era that I started to see, uh, I continue to be very interested in trust, but also started to see the political paradigm shift taking place mm. and how politics was now a domain that actually offered these opportunities for uh, non-consensus bets to actually have a major impact. And in some sense, yeah. the sort of establishment figures on the right were being shunted to the side. And it was really the it was the uh, the people with the interesting ideas, the people pushing uh, 
pushing new concepts that were driving change there. So, uh, and then that's a paradigm shift that's touching all of society, sort of like uh, in terms of where the biggest opportunities are going to be, they are going to be at the intersection of, uh, of politics and something and something in society. Uh, And for me, that was business. It was investing. And so started Mm -hmm. new founding really on this recognition that the gap between uh, to some extent, the impact of media and really the ideas behind media on the right, uh, the gap mm. between business models in that space and their impact was enormous. Uh, these ideas are having massive impact across the country. And yet there's very, very little in the way of business models built mm. around them. And to me, that was an opportunity that makes it a fruitful place for entrepreneurial expecta- uh, exploration. And I would say new founding started. So I'm in Dallas. I moved to Dallas uh, a few years before that, actually, but I saw Dallas as the natural capital of Red America, uh, not necessarily sort of a well-developed uh, concentration of institutions yet, but if there's going to be a major blue to red move, Dallas is a great hub for that. We as a movement yeah. need alternative hubs. We can't we can't continue to yeah, build right. our institutions in fundamentally hostile cities and fundamentally hostile states. Can't have our entertainment mm-hmm. capital be LA, our financial capital can't be yeah. New York. We need to build our own. And so that yeah. was the hub there. Uh, I started new founding as sort of a venture. In a way, it was sort of a venture model for me. It was a number of projects that thematically uh, were related to this broad question of what are opportunities in business, often with a significant media component on the right generally, uh, where as I saw the space emerging. Uh, Worked on that, worked on that for, uh, for a while. And uh, as you ask about the development for me, I think the big major developments have been a recognizing, uh, I, I guess, just gaining a better understanding of the themes of the power of the media of how to how to work with yeah. media. Uh, big change is going to be uh, as we move toward uh, selling our media. Mm. Uh, we're we're actually selling our media properties yes. and uh, concentrating. Uh, new founding fundamentally, and we're also with that uh, with Align, which is one of our uh, our business to uh, basically a consumer oriented newsletter telling you how not to buy from people who hate you. Yeah. Uh, we're actually moving to concentrate, uh, and I think there's there's a lot of great people doing a lot of great things in the consumer space, but to concentrate our organization on essentially those venture level connections, high level mm-hmm. talent connections. So fundamentally new founding has moved in the direction of brokering, you could say business to business or investment level, uh, venture level connections. Uh, and that's from an institutional culture perspective, that's a very different culture, very different DNA than a B2C business, which is always sort of waking up and you're, you're, you're trying to keep your thumb on the sort of pulse of what a particular consumer base is looking for. Uh, we very actively try to understand that world. We want to help portfolio companies understand that world. But fundamentally, what we're in the business of doing is we're in the business of helping bring together founders, work with founders who are trying to reach this space, uh, work with investors who are reaching this space, back them, whether it's advisory work or investment work. Mm-hmm. And then on the talent side, essentially get higher level people, engineers, professionals, executives, mm-hmm. get them out of woke organizations get them into aligned organizations, organizations yeah. where they can day-to-day know that they're going to work in building the country they want to live in. Uh, so that that for me has been uh, really over the last year, I think, moving from that investment mindset to much more of a CEO mindset where we've narrowed yeah. the business uh, 
we've narrowed the business. We've had some progress, some successful partnerships. We've actually mm -hmm. spun off a few organizations. And in terms of what we remain, it, it has that focus where I can go and know that my job, the way I'm going to make a difference in the world is by finding better and better ways to broker uh, broker these types of very high value transactions mm. uh, where that alignment is a major axis that matters to people. Yeah. So in terms of making a difference in the world, most people wouldn't really go into this space unless it had some sort of push there, right? It mustn't just be opportunity-based for you. Obviously, a lot of us saw early on, I know I did early on, even in the entertainment business when I was in Los Angeles, I thought there's a great opportunity here, even though it's risky and dangerous, right, to, in, to moving into the, that space. So is that also what motivated you as well? Is that underneath or is it more, is it more, well, it's just a, the numbers uh, uh, thing. Is it a duty for you as well? I'm just curious. It's absolutely a duty. And that's really why I'm in the operating side, particularly. I mean, as I said, temperamentally, I'm probably more of an investor. I was approaching yeah. things as an investor. I was actually, 2020 was really a, a, a sort of game changing, mindset changing year for me in the mm. sense that I, I went in there, I saw what was happening. I was very online. I was following things. Uh, I, I, I very successfully, I think, anticipated and traded uh, the... COVID disaster, the uh, yeah, the market right. collapse yeah. and all of that. And I realize it's sort of profoundly unsatisfying to just be mm. sort of making money off the collapse of society. That's not <laughs> that's not what I wanted to be yeah. doing. And it wasn't yeah. really what I ever really wanted to be doing, but I would say uh, th that was what I was good at. And there weren't necessarily ways yeah. to do the more entrepreneurial side uh, in what I sort of saw as there, there weren't well-established ways for me to do what I knew how to do what I was comfortable doing uh, and actually build things. So that that caused me to jump into something that was definitely outside my comfort zone, which is actually building mm. this. I would say the imperative is what pushed me toward that business building and institution building. Uh, for yeah. me, I think there's tremendous opportunity here. I think there's great opportunity. There's also a lot of risk, right? I mean, it's, at yes. a certain point, yes. it's easy to be comfortable. There's plenty of paths to to do well financially and be comfortable and sort of move around if I got to move around with my family or whatever. Mm. But I, uh, there's a, th so there's sure. an additional level when you're uh, engaging in the sort of politics I'm engaging in. I think yes. that it's, yeah. I think it offers massive opportunity for people who are willing to jump in early. It also offers mm. tremendous risk. I mean, anytime you're mm. engaged in uh, what I think we both recognize are uh, regime level conflicts that we're in today, mm the the baseline assumption should be uh losers are going to be punished uh yes. sometimes even winners are punished uh yeah. along the way so it's uh it, it's certainly not risk free it's uh it, it's actually a risk that goes even beyond financial risk sometimes uh but it's uh it, it is one that offers tremendous reward but it's also one that i i feel compelled to uh compelled to be in both you know, altruistically i mm. i want to drive the country in a good direction I also think just temperamentally, that's for whatever reason I've always I've always been drawn to uh, doing things at this scale. Might be um, I think a lot of us have the high disagreeability and the personality uh, index. You might have that, which is where you're yep. not willing to go along with an evil, right? It's just not in your nature, or you know, to just 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 follow the rules or to say be in a, a woke uh, corporate structure where you just have to 
do that when it's just clearly wrong, right? So I don't know if that's in your personality, but I doubt you're being an investor. Absolutely. I doubt you're an agreeable, but yeah, that's what I thought. I'm not, and it's interesting. I was I actually grew up homeschooled, and it was pretty unusual when I grew up. But I was uh, I was disagreeable even among homeschoolers. But uh, yeah, it also right. I think cultivated a a desire, an attraction to uh, an independent perspective. So uh, certainly drawn to the independent. Uh, I think naturally. Uh, fairly disagreeable. So when you mentioned, uh, I think a lot of this too, is it's a Peter Thiel's idea of under, finding these opportunities underneath the taboo, but there are also risks, like you said, right? And I was talking to a mutual acquaintance of ours, a disgraced propagandist uh, who was a, an ad man. And um, we were talking about um, vetting, the vetting of, bi of businesses and people. And you must do a lot of that, right? That's important that these people are sort of vetted as quote unquote based, right? So you know that a institution or a person isn't going to just uh, immediately cuck over to liberal, right? And then suddenly your organization has someone that they have to fire and they're uh, suddenly leaking all this stuff that from your organization, right? So, I mean, how can we, I, you can't obviously give away everything because there's certain things you obviously have got whatever in counter espionage, corporate espionage, all that sort of stuff. You can't give all those secrets away, but maybe you can talk a bit about that, about that vetting process that gives people confidence of the people they might hire. Because uh, that is a thing that a lot of us come up against. I know people, I'm friends with people that are large uh, media figures, and usually they have to hire friends, right? Because it's very hard to find people who you can rely on that's going to be of your politics and not betray you. <laughs> It's definitely true. Now, I think there's an element to which we actually can. Uh, right now, there's a lot of risk to associating with the right, with the dissident right. So part of it is uh, there's a self-selection and that mitigates the need to vet uh, at this point. I think with success, with financial success comes more and more draw. I would say mm. what we really need to vet for is probably quality, high yeah. caliber. If someone's very high caliber, if they in many cases, there's people on my team who took 60, 70% pay cuts to join. Uh, mm. Very, very attractive careers. They're not going to do that. I mean, they're 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 ultimately, uh, they're burning the ships in a sense for attractive industry, yeah. uh, private equity careers, for instance. They're not going to do that unless they believe in what we're doing. Uh, that's mm. uh, th That I think is a level of skin in the game that is a very, very yeah, strong signal. Yeah. Yes. In other cases, you look for other skin in the game. It's really... Are they are they taking any risk? Are they mm, uh, yeah. are they willing to touch? Are they willing to touch the opinions that uh, that aren't sort of socially acceptable and uh, in mainstream? Uh, I guess you could say in sort of beltway acceptable conservatism, right? Are they willing to? Yeah. Uh, are they willing to associate? Biggest one I would say is they don't even need to. It's not even about whether they hold necessarily, particularly say far right opinions, but. Mm. Are they comfortable engaging topics, mm. engaging the sort of the, the topics that emerge around regime level discussions? Are they comfortable yeah. comfortable associating with people uh, who may be significantly to their right uh, as well as significantly to their left? In many cases, you have a lot of people who say they're on the right uh, and they are perfectly happy having conversations with people on the left, uh, but then they'll aggressively gatekeep anyone meaningfully to the yes. right of them. And that's yes. that's the sign of someone who they ultimately they want to uh they want to remain acceptable to the left there's no yes. skin in the game there right they're right. they're rising they're rising in profile through the conservative uh world 
And there could be a job waiting for them if they turn David French effectively on the other side, if they're willing to turn on us. Uh, mm-hmm. And that certainly a strong signal of that can be their their unwillingness to engage with people to their right, uh, people who would mm-hmm. actually make them uh, unacceptable to that uh, that that potentially uh, left leaning mainstream. So uh, a lot of those factors, I would say, for employers ultimately through our talent network, to some extent they they do their own vetting. They have different standards. They know why people came in here. Again, at this point, you're not going to have a ton of people who are throwing their, if they're talented, if they're successful, if they're capable people, they they would have job opportunities. Uh, in many cases, you have better people looking for jobs than would otherwise be willing to work for, let's say, a mid-sized company. They're willing to leave Goldman Sachs and go to that mid-sized company precisely because their preferences have changed to the point that they really value alignment in a way. That's not a move that a lot of people are going to make uh, if they aren't meaningfully aligned, if they don't really care about those uh, those preferences, those values alignment. Uh, at the same time, the, the company that's employing them knows why they're in this network. They know they came here because they're looking for something specific, gives the opportunity to ask the sort of questions that understand their motivation, understand why they're really looking for this. So uh, to some extent, I think you can't, ultimately motivated infiltrators could find their way into this. That's, I think, every dissident movement in history has probably had yeah. many such people. Uh, ultimately, what we're doing is uh, we're building institutions, we're building businesses. There's nothing mm-hmm. illegal about that. There's nothing that would be, uh, in many cases, what we're doing is actually in public, too. I mean, my model is the more public we are, uh, the more we broadcast our business on Twitter, for instance, the more people are drawn to it and come to it. So, uh, it's not even anything that's sort of deeply secret the way someone who's developing proprietary technology yeah. may be. Uh, it's uh, it, it is something we're trying to amplify. We're trying to amplify another positive vision for for mm-hmm. life and for business and for where we should go. And we want people to come to that. And I'm not I'm not too worried about uh, infiltrators at this point. I, I think as yeah. we grow successful. Uh, there certainly will be those moles. They want to come in. They they want to gather information. They want to turn around and write a work with, sell it to a journalist or write an expose or something. That'll happen. And and we're going to have to develop mechanisms for that uh, over time. And increasingly, I think it comes down to, uh, and I've talked about this as the fundamental mechanism for credibility in the digital age. Uh, yeah. It'll often come down to skin in the game. Uh, the more, yeah. uh, the more skin in the game, the more people can be trusted. And I, uh, the traditional measures of trust, uh, the degrees, the, uh, the the traditional credentials, the the ability to the polish and professional uh, image that makes people look good on TV. Increasingly, those signals of credibility, those ones yeah. that have dominated our society, really, I would say since sort of the Kennedy era was when the televisual age became the dominant. Uh, the, the in a sense, we developed an aristocracy of image. Uh, yeah, that's going to disappear across society and everyone's going to need to develop new mechanisms for credibility. And I think skin in the game is skin in the game is one we're going to see emerge, not just in our sort of political circle, but uh, it's going to be a dominant one across society. And obviously, pe- different people with different values will look for different sorts of skin in the game or different skin in the game, indicating commitment to different sets of values. But uh, Me- that's going to be a broad reset. Maybe we can expand. Uh, I remember seeing a tweet of yours about that. Actually, is that this new, these new sig- signaling things? Are there any others that you've uh, come across uh, or in your thinking about? Uh, because people will be looking towards this. All right, how can I build up a uh, value asset 
of a value of signaling that's authentic that will overcome this. Because say you do it early, right, and you overcommit resources for a signaling that isn't ready yet, and the other the old signaling is still working, right? So it's sort of knowing when to when that crossover is right. Or when does courage uh, become a signal? Uh, I think that's what was your tweet about that. It was about yes, the, yeah. Courage. Well, and I think I, I would say I use skin in the game broadly. I think there's many forms of skin yeah. in the game. And I think traditionally image image has indicated confidence. Image has indicated competence, right? In the television, mm -hmm. to, to elaborate on the tweet point, uh, during the last era, uh, in a sense, the ability to look and sound and write in professional ways were correlated with competence. Uh, getting to the point where you were very good at television was something that didn't happen probably unless you'd spent time in professional institutions that yeah. at that point were, uh, we're, we're real, uh, filters for competence and credibility, uh, the ability to write, uh, write in, let's call it an Ivy league way or a professional yes. way. Yeah, yeah. I believe meant you'd actually spent time at Ivy league institutions yeah. where you had actually gotten a real education. Uh, for a while, they still gave a real education. You'd spent time in corporate America, rising a ladder, which again, uh, in the America of the 60s, of the 70s, uh, was often a corporate America, the 80s. Uh, it was often a corporate America where, uh, whether it was Wall Street, whether it was uh, bigger corporations, uh, it would indicate that you were around other very high caliber people uh, in a country that was still growing and was building. And so it was a legitimate signal. You look at that and you think this it's a legitimate signal that this person's capable. Uh, now, why is that decaying? Why is that going away? Uh, first off, uh, I guess those institutions themselves are uh, increasingly, I think th they're good at developing the signal without the substance. So originally the signal yeah. developed and it was a sign that tended to accompany the type of experience that would have meant substance, right? You spent a long time in a corporate environment and you actually are, uh, you're learning to sound like a corporate professional, but you're also yeah. learning to run a business in a real way. Uh, you get really good at television because you spend a lot of time in the sort of jobs where you have learned uh, competent aspects of public leadership uh, that uh, certainly build those skills, but they also uh, build the competence to actually be a good leader. And, uh, it, and whether you, you disagree with that, whether you agree or disagree with the doctrines that necessarily the ideologies that that accompanied that there was a measure of competence now why is that degraded now it's degraded now because i uh, as i said increasingly the signal becomes uh these institutions become optimized for the signal rather than the substance yeah. uh, and so uh universities no longer give you a great education they teach you to sound uh they teach you to sound like a credentialed pr professional but the substance of learning how to think is increasingly not there I, uh, but even more than that, I think what you see is you see, uh, you see a degradation in these, an inflation one could say in the sort of, uh, in, in such signals. So Instagram is a great example. Instagram mm. filters suddenly mm. make it easy for a yeah. vast array of people at very low cost to have essentially a TV quality image, an image that mm. previously would be associated with someone who actually had a significant degree of success. I. Uh, the value of image is trending towards zero. Deep fakes will increasingly yeah. mean that yeah. any photo, any video can't be trusted at all. And and initially they'll fool some people. You'll certainly have these situations where, where uh, an image goes viral and uh, it turns out that it was faked. A uh, video goes viral. It turns out it was fake. That's going to happen. But that's going to very, very quickly, people are going to learn to just totally distrust an image or a video unless mm. there's some sort of uh, 
signature indicating this real. But even then, they're just going to they're going to devalue things that come through those channels because they're they're going to be so inundated with fake signals there. Uh, on the word side, on the ability to, to sound professional, Chat GPT is increasingly making it so you can yeah. type in a few sentences and you yeah. can turn out something that sounds like what a uh, corporate professional would be able to write. And so, again, there's a degradation in the signals that are associated with competence and success. Uh, and what's going to replace them? I think it's going to be a messy, messy process because uh, it takes a long time for signals to arise. But skin in the game fundamentally is non-fakeable uh, in a way that increasingly those televisual age uh, signals of image and word are going to be increasingly fakeable. So skin in the game can look like courage, uh, taking a risk on something. And it has to be a real risk. People get savvy to what's a real risk and what's not a real risk. Yeah. Uh, one reason certain comedians actually have credibility is they push the bounds of things. They actually take mm. real risks. Uh, but certainly this can apply to all sorts of courage, right? Did they risk their life for something? Is this someone who's in a position of real professional success who uh, publicly took a position? It might not be a position that's a radical position for an internet suit to take, uh, but it might be a position that everyone knows is actually risky for that person to take. That's courage. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's something that I think people do respect. Uh, it's, it's one reason I think they respect Elon is they see mm. Elon doing things, doing the kind of things that, uh, while they may not be radical are, uh, are certainly making him enemies in a yeah. class that a lot of, uh, billionaires, uh, tend not to make enemies of. And then I think there's sort of the very basic, there's the classic forms of skin in the game. Are you investing money in a venture? And, and, and yeah. actually I'll use Elon as another example. I mean, he, borrowed a lot. I believe he went into significant debt uh, to invest more money in SpaceX at one point. I mean, that's just not mm. something a lot of founders do. A lot of founders basically build their entire business on other people's money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that shows a kind of skin in the game, a soul in the game. But I think there's many, many people who are increasingly going to be uh, judged according to uh, uh, to measures like that. Are they staking? Are they, are they clearly taking a position that can be judged right or wrong in the future. You're staking your reputation mm. on something in a meaningful way. Yeah. So uh, how do you know when is the time to do that, as you say? I, I would say it's very predictable that that's the direction things are going to be going. Uh, there can be value to continuing to sort of put your head down and play the uh, the existing corporate and professional game. I think it's there's good experience that can come from that. I'm not, uh, not going to... Uh, Far from sort of trashing people who do that, I think that it's for truly committed people spending a few years, spending even more than a few years in that world can give uh, an understanding of how the current system works that's quite valuable, can help them build up the financial resources uh, that position them to now be financially free in a sense. So mm. I think it's a prudential question case by case with people, but yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and I guess one last form of skin in the game I'll say is is the social capital you have in a deep community. As you yeah. invest in a deep community as you're whether it's a church or whether it's other other uh relationships you're building mm -hmm. where you're you're spending more and more time with people, that's a form that's a yeah. basis for skin in the game, right? You now have something you now have something that has been costly that can be risked on things. Uh, I think these high trust communities will retain will yeah, remain trust pillars of trust in a world where trust in uh, these uh, sort of 
elite societal institutions is increasingly collapsing. So you'll see this sort of distributed trust, these distributed pillars mm. of trust, whether they be church communities or maybe a substacker who's built up trust with his followers for uh, years and years of uh, of content that they they trust him as a provider of, of guidance essentially on the world. So there's a lot of different ways you'll see yeah. that. And I think you can start building those often. Uh, you, you can sometimes start building those before you abandon uh, abandon legacy ones. Mm. Obviously, certain forms like courage uh, increasingly are an either or. If you're taking a risky position, you you may lose. It's risky precisely because you may lose the uh, the mainstream professional status. So it's a judgment call people have to make. Yeah, I, they, I think there's... Like, Oh, I was just going to say that uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting things there is that you mentioned um, almost an exchange for not an exchange for, but because people's value is often determined or a signal is their uh, social clout right online, their numbers, which is going to be there for a while. But people, billionaires can fake that they can throw in, you know, you can fake Bill Gates blowing a bunch of advertising. Really, he doesn't have the influence, though, really, to some people that have, say, built it up. But you mentioned just there is that uh, those sort of traditional bonds. So that could become a resource. That's very interesting. That's a, that I could see that being a change over time. Say the Orthodox Church. If you see someone who has a community is in a community in the Orthodox Church, or and also the other thing you mentioned uh, in, in the sense of uh, predicting these sort of things. Uh, in a sense, really, yes, prudence, but in a sense, faith as well. Because um, if you're going to make a courageous decision it's not going to be purely rational. It's not going to be game theory. Uh, I mean, we're not going to beat the religious person beats the game theory spurg on his own. Like the someone that's wise and religious and has God on his side, but is smart, of course, and prudent and uses all the tools, but has God on his side beats just the pure spur game theorists. So I think that's another thing. It's not just, I think there's so many people that are still in the institutions who are uh, ultra calculative, but don't have the other, point there right that might give them the courage to uh, step out you need you kind of need that um that's one thing we yes. have that the enemy doesn't it, it is and i think you're absolutely right i think that and that's why i think that many of the communities where this is really going to develop are centered around churches they're they're places mm -hmm. where people are uh they're building up a community of people who have their back uh, which on the one hand means that even if things get bad they're not losing everything, right? They still have their community there. And that's worth something yeah. that, that in a sense, I mean, people are social animals. So uh, that's, that's important, but it is, it ultimately does strengthen them. Uh, they know that they are, uh, they're doing this on the basis of more than just pure self-interest, pure rational self-interest. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, uh, that is crucial. And I think the faith actually, it creates an ethic that actually creates the foundation for a lot more. So I'll give an example, going back to the financial system, the alternative financial model about how this can look and really how we can build on these. And the example I give that I like is the Quakers in 17th century England. So the Quakers in 17th century England were sort of a famously high trust community. And it, it came from a few different things. It came from uh, really their Christian, uh, their Christian faith and the way their faith, the way their their theology applied that to practical decisions. Uh, and that was that was certainly an important factor. Uh, it essentially compelled them to be honest uh, and trustworthy in their dealings and their business dealings, both with insiders and outsiders. Uh, and then I think the second thing is that it, it was also actually at that time a dissident uh, dissident faith. And so 
it separated them as a community that allowed their community to develop meaningfully different norms that I think prevented, uh, let's say, corruption by uh, factors that may have been pervasive in society uh, that would lead to an undermining of trustworthiness as a community. So in a way, they were both distinct and they were high trust. And that allowed them to be very desirable business partners, not just for each other, but for the broader society. And a lot of financial firms came out of that. So an example is Barclays. Barclays Bank was founded by Quakers, uh, obviously grew to be a major successful banking house. But you think of banking and it's in many ways brokering trust, brokering credit yes. uh, deeply matters if you trust the people involved in it. And uh, I think we are... Really, this is what sets us up, not just to peel off and build, let's say, a sort of small parallel uh, cultural and economic ghetto, but which I think is often what sort of parallel economy visions stop at is they they sort of the most they're aiming for is we're going to create our own version of of whatever we'll create our own version of this uh, this culture this store. Uh, whereas I think that the the dynamics actually set us up to win, and this is what excites me is. Ultimately, if we maintain these distinct high trust communities and we build economic layers on top of them and we leverage them, uh, we yeah. leverage them not just for our, our our community and our lives, but we leverage them to actually build alternative ways of mediating trust, mediating economic mm-hmm. opportunity. Uh, talent placement's a huge one. Credentials, essentially an alternative way of getting people into attractive job opportunities. Uh, and that easily builds to capital as well, is uh, then who do you bet on? Who do you bet on to buy a business? Who do you bet on for a new venture idea? And I think we are positioned to leverage these these distinct, deep communities, rich, thick communities, uh, and do so that initially serves our needs, initially allows us to, in a sense, uh, even once you opt out of these elite institutions, uh, whether that be Wall Street banks or uh, or, or elite uh, credentialers, universities, whatever, uh, initially we can continue to provide attractive opportunities for talented people in our own communities. Uh, but as I think these, uh, as I think you see this collapse in trust in broader society, uh, you're going to yeah. see a degradation of those signals. You're going to see a, a, a collapse in trust in the banking system and the financial system. More and more people who may not be fully based or fully aligned with us politically are just going to recognize that we're a more trustworthy counterparty. We're a more trustworthy intermediary. Uh, the credentials that come from our community, uh, our hiring network is actually able to uh, offer better opportunities, better means of vetting people than Harvard is. Yeah. That's going to draw a broad middle. It's not going to draw the the radical left ideologues. Uh, they're dead set on accomplishing. They are like the sort of religious fundamentalists in a sense. Uh, but it's going to draw a lot of people who may not be super political, but or they may not see themselves as super political, uh, but they, they just want something that offers a good opportunity. And once that happens, uh, you in a sense see this uh, this flip. Uh, I like the uh, the crypto term flippening, right? There's a yeah. There's a sort of, financial collapse, collapse in trust that resembles a banking crisis yeah. in legacy institutions. And ours remain firm because they're built on these independent communities. And then what happens after a crisis is more and more people don't want to stay at that low trust level, at that low leverage level. And they recohere around the pillars that remain. And ultimately, we've built the pillars that remain on 
uh, something that is going to be uh, resilient through this new uh, this new paradigm, which is independent high trust. In many ways, I think it's going to be independent high trust communities, uh, often built around a a deep uh, religious faith. Churches, uh, probably yes. churches of various traditions. So, uh, in that case, now we're the in many ways we're now the one setting these community standards and we can use, yeah. we can use that position to help uh, say, look, if you want to come through our, if you want to do business through our networks, here are the norms. Uh, and I see that that's as right. a that's reversing of, yeah. That's what I was going to um, uh, just interject with is that what the Quakers obviously have is a ubiquity of culture. And so part of the reason for the, the evolution of all trust is, is that it's throwing all these different cultures together. So um, I imagine you've put work into that, how to develop that. And as you say, if you become the mediator of it, people naturally know they're going to have to, uh, I imagine, uh, conform to whatever your um, standards are. How will you present that? Have you got a system in place to, to, for the cultural element that will build that uh, trust? Because people are going to come over from completely you know, different cultures and such um different ways of behaving yeah so i don't know that we i don't know that we do a a uniform one i think it's more like we build the model i want to do with talent is it starting with basically get out of woke into non-woke getting into more aligned companies but really as this scales it's going to be a it'll end up leveraging a number of existing aligned communities so i uh, i think you'll see a sort of there will be compatibility, but there will be a pluralism of communities where there's there's yeah. a, I mean, even within even within Christianity, there's sort of pretty significantly different True. denominations or whatever. Uh, and then there will be a broader range. There will be ones that are sort of dissident tech, uh, sort of the crypto adjacent communities and things. And mm. I, I suspect different ones will have different values. And there will be a sense in which some of them are probably a little more insular too. Some of them are a little more, uh, the, the culture is designed for, uh, doing business with a broader range of people and essentially serving that intermediary function more. Uh, I certainly want to, in the Christian side, and this is another organization I founded is American Reformer. Uh, American Reformer's mission is to uh, restore that that Protestant political and cultural tradition. Uh, the traditional magisterial Protestant uh, theology included a robust view of how the church would influence politics, culture, economics, and all mm -hmm. of that. Uh, in many ways, that's been scaled back. And I think modern evangelicalism is effectively Anabaptist. It's very, very, uh, in many ways, detached from a lot of those uh, mm. uh, those worldly institutions. Whereas the original Protestant reformers uh, who founded a lot of the great institutions in our society uh, or, or people influenced by them founded a lot of the great institutions had a very robust view. And so our goal is to revive what I would say is a the tradition that helped build uh, build America also helped deeply shape by uh, England and uh, do so in a way that uh, prepares these communities uh, not just to, I think have I uh, uh, re return to a very well thought out tradition uh, for how a lot of these ethics public ethics norms are set but also why uh, prepare them for a position of leadership. Again, what I think modern evangelicalism does is it sort of pairs things back to a very individualistic faith. Whereas uh, the 
these Protestant institutions were built by people who recognize there is a role for elites in society. There's yeah. a role for people who are leading institutions and through that setting standards uh, that are uh, shaping and governing, shaping society, governing society, even governing their governing their domains in society. And uh, we, again, we have a tradition that helps uh, help shape that. Catholics, I think, also have a tradition. Catholics, in many ways, uh, are less afraid of, I mean, they're, their structure is inherently more hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And I think they're uh, less afraid of that uh, acceptance of hierarchy, acceptance of the role of elites. So uh, I think that's part of the reason that you see a lot of uh, see a lot of Catholics at the intellectual elite level of the conservative movement, especially in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think it needs to be limited to that. I think that, uh, again, mm -hmm. The founding of our country involved a lot of uh, a lot of people who were deeply shaped by the Protestant tradition and accepted similarly that uh, public role of leadership in society. And there's a uh, essentially there's a rich tradition to yeah uh, restore. The Virginians, the Virginians were very hierarchical, and yes. uh, they took up most of the uh, leadership positions. Washington, um, Jefferson, and uh, and that they're my favorite. The, those Southerners, uh, in fact. Um, they actually had their own knightly order, the the, the order of the golden shoe, <laughs> which is uh, interesting. Virginia, uh, thing. people don't realize how deeply old European they were down there. And, uh, and uh, I think it's something that hierarchical way of being because it's underneath a taboo in Virginia because of slavery and all that. Just put that to the side for a moment and just say, oh, this hierarchical way of doing things, which uh, a lot of us on the right realize we need to go back to, right? We need an elite. We need a vanguard. We need a, uh, a hierarchy. Um, actually, there are very important Anglo-Saxon ways of being and doing things down there. Again, putting that stuff to the side, it's just, a, you know, hierarchy's good um, <laughs> and we need it, right? So, yeah, building a vanguard, you're, 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 these are all, you're saying all the right words from my perspective because... Uh, yeah, it's something we talk about a lot at the moment is establishing a vanguard as a replacement for when the regime collapses, hopefully. Uh, but um, maybe you can talk a bit about also things that influenced you, because a lot of men uh, in this space, I think, firstly, uh, probably some lack entrepreneurial education, but also it's important to see examples of things that uh, inspired people and that drove them into their field right so for you what led you to your vocation were there any key books that were initiatory for you in your belief or in going into business that impelled you towards books or practices or rituals or anything this is kind of the question of the show i suppose i um yeah anything that was key for you that was either a turning point that you read a book or something for leading you on your destiny, I suppose, for your vocation or, or belief as well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, great question. I, in terms of my my draw toward business, that that started when I was quite young, when I was, uh, I think, still in middle school. So it, it, that was sort of that in many ways was. Was something that. I don't know exactly what it was. My my grandfather was an investment banker. Uh, it was mm -hmm. neither of my parents was in business, but it was certainly something that always fascinated me. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned, 
as I touched on briefly, it was during college. During college, I became convinced that business was a place that could reward non-consensus but correct ideas. And that was attractive to me. So I was always Fine. drawn to that side of things. Now, what really helped shape my views of business, uh, in many ways, my uh, my inherently sort of dissident frame on the world, which first mm. developed in business, and then I then applied to politics, but continues to shape business. Uh, there's a few books. So one very influential one was uh, Anti-Fragile by Taleb yeah. and some of the other uh, some of the other books by Taleb uh, really hammered home, I think, my I, I had a degree of suspicion of the Ivy League world. I'd, I'd come out of there in a very viewed in a very utilitarian sense. Uh, he, I think, gave an, a, a coherent intellectual uh, critique of their pretensions to authority and expertise. And uh, that was very helpful. It, it actually was interesting as my my business partner coming out of law school, a classmate of mine, was instinctively, uh, he instinctively operated in a way that just exemplified that sort of skepticism. He also had gone to uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, one of the worst students at Harvard Law School, uh, mo- kick, almost kicked out multiple times. Uh, it's a good song. Now, uh, now almost certainly the uh, the richest self-made guy in my class, yeah. and that's uh, uh, or certainly one of them, and that's I think not uh, not uncommon. But he exemplified that. Reading Talib then helped uh, sort of formally uh, clarify why he was right and why they were wrong. Uh, and why, in many ways, the instincts that had drawn me to partner with him were were right. So that was uh, a, a certainly an influential one. I think that Talib himself has obviously, during COVID, for instance, he took some very, very strong opinions uh, that were in favor of lockdowns, in favor of restrictions. Uh, I don't agree with those. I think that often uh, there's the prudential questions uh, that are very practical in a particular domain. Uh, what, what did it for me is he actually elevated the importance of prudential questions and pr- prudential judgment over a lot of this uh, theoretical judgment uh, that has been applied by technocrats to every domain uh, and realizing it's actually the tinkers. It's actually the it's tinkers, the people with skin in the game who matter. I think another book that is profoundly shaped and probably shaped what I'm doing more than anything else is knowledge and power by George Gilder and Mm. knowledge and power is I, he draws on information theory uh, and he draws an information theory, particularly associated with actually actions with skin in the game as well, uh, to really reframe the very heart of economics. Economics fundamentally is about creation. Wealth creation is about the creation of information. I I think you can draw it back to Genesis 1 and God's creation of the world. So God, because uh, God creates us and he creates us in his image. And the first thing he does is he creates. So I think our creation in many ways parallels his. What did he do? He created something out of nothing. He didn't just create matter too. He created, he essentially created information. He created an ordered world uh, out of nothing. And similarly, I think entrepreneurial creativity, entrepreneurial judgment is a similar uh, creation of information in a way that can actually uh, meaningfully increase wealth as the as it as it is proving to be valuable information and skin in the game is one of the things that can allow you to take a risk on that information and uh, mm-hmm. can essentially enhance the 
information content of something. So if someone takes a big bet on something that they say, then essentially that that creates an information value associated with it. Uh, and that goes to my view of of credentials, of alternative credentials. How do you know that you can trust? What's an alternative to a Harvard degree? The alternative to a Harvard degree is a recommendation of someone whose judgment you trust. Why do you why do you respect that judgment so highly? You respect that judgment when a, you know the person has a lot of credibility to stake on that, which is the product, skin in the game, it's the product of having demonstrated good judgment over time, having built up a reputation, and you know they're actually staking that reputation on the recommendation to you, meaning that they care about your opinion of them or they care about some consequence of their recommendation uh, proving correct. And if they're right, it goes up, and if they're wrong, it goes down. And that's actually what I... That's fundamentally what I makes that recommendation have value. So um, that came from sorry. going back to Gilder's skin in the game that or going back to Gilder's knowledge and power. I think Gilder framed economic economic wealth creation fundamentally in those terms. Mm. Mm. Yeah, right. So it's interesting when we a lot of that is um, because business is fundamentally about capital it's it's utilitarian right but i suppose there is another element too with this stuff is that because this is linked up with building a new society and a new founding right yep. if there are other values beauty or there are other values of religion right so say you were going to build a new uh, found a new city out somewhere and that was part of the business that you were going to do how would you build it? Would you build it in a way that was just utilitarian, which is how a lot of America is built and the other, you know, other British, ex-British things. So everything's built utilitarian now, isn't it? Yep. But or is there a way of imbuing things in it that aren't just utilitarian? Um, say you just wanted to say, look, we're going to make this all in the neo-Gothic style, like they managed to do quite brilliantly in an age that was still an age of uh, industrial revolution, they, they were able to manufacture, even out to the furthest colony, a schoolhouse was made in the neo-Gothic style. So that was uneconomic, yet they managed to find a way to get people still to do it. Uh, Looks like your window's behind you. Yeah, yeah. It's green yeah. screen. It'd be too expensive, okay. right, to build it. <laughs> so um, that's the point, though, isn't it? How do we do, do these things? Because our world world our world looks the way it uh, does to us because we're in a modernist age i think people are ready for a post modernist what in terms of changing the way what church and belief change the way that world looks to you so you you know you go to church and you don't uh look at the world like just as a tool do you once you've been to the ritual and you've read the, the holy bible the way the world looks and the way you treat the world uh is not utilitarian but of course when you get sucked into the profane again it becomes more it's using you as a tool you're using it you see what i mean yes the answer is yes in terms of that i think that there is something there's something significant in that crafting in the crafting of something that is more than purely utilitarian and economic mm. and i i think in a digital in an age of uh in an age of sort of infinite digital replication of so many things, there's going to be an increasing value. Uh, there's going to be an increasing value placed on that. Uh, that's mm. going to be a 
that is a form of skin in the game, right? You think of skin in the game and yeah, just investing in something that's aesthetically non-utilitarian is itself a signal. And that's not a new signal, right? I mean, banks, banks would, they would have the, the marble columns. They would have an elaborate building. What does that signify? Signifies the banker is not just going to pick up and leave town, right? I mean, it mm. certainly it costs something and it has some value, but even more than that, if you invest, uh, if you invest a significant amount in building that building in town, uh, then it's it's only rational to also invest in capitalizing the bank well in other ways or uh, staking some of the banker's reputation on that. So I think that uh, universities, likewise, universities were uh, trust mediating institutions, and they would build uh, they would build architecture that would signify uh, or, or that actually was. Uh, I think it was enhancing the significance and the credibility of the degrees they provide mm. because what they're doing is uh, it's adding a weight. It's adding a skin in the game to their function. And yeah. churches, again, churches, uh, you invested in something that was a beautiful building partially because that signified a uh, an importance placed on this building, an importance placed on this institution Across the board, I expect that we'll see a greater appreciation of this. I think people are drawn to this. Uh, they're drawn to this in ways, make cases are drawn to this in ways that are still backward looking. Uh, you even see this in sort of left adjacent spaces, hipsters being very into yeah. reclaimed wood, like reclaimed barn wood or whatever. Like that's, there's an age to that. There's something to that that is not just mass industrial. And they're not wrong about that, but uh that's an early stage of uh, it's an early stage of valuing that. Whereas I would say a society that has a true renaissance is has moved beyond just that backward looking valuing yes. of antiques to a uh, a production of new uh, production of new buildings of new uh, goods that have the same uh, level of uh, of depth and investment. I think there needs to be a recognition as well for the people financing and the people funding. And I can use, a, there's a philosopher, Sheila, who has a thing, uh, talks about the value hierarchy. Now this value isn't something that's a proposition. What it means is, is that certain things have a different attunement, right? Where utility will pull you. you oh, I have to do this, but it draws you in a certain way. Like same thing as a, like a sexual attraction it has a certain feel to it, doesn't it? But that's different than the attraction of the sacred. That has a certain attunement, doesn't it? When you're at church, you're drawn towards it in a different way, but it still motivates you. So if we have an understanding of the higher order ways of, of motivating humans to action, uh, to good action and understanding what the good is, I think that can help understand because some people would think, Oh, we'll just build the big columns in the bank because it's a status thing, right? Oh, it's a status thing. So it's a, again, they just prof profaneize it. But if you think about it and you understand it in this way, is it, it's still good. It still motivates, but understanding what it really is. Um, and actually, it's more powerful to lead people to the good, right? And to, to have that proper... Because people think, oh, but we, like I said, it's very easy to jump back into the utilitarian. But when you have that thing, actually, over a long period of time, you can surely make the case for this is probably going to work and earn more money if you have to make a utilitarian case again mm -hmm. uh, in the long run, if you do it. 
because there are examples of them doing this in building uh, communities now. They're not everywhere, but they've got certain places uh, where they build in the Regency style in England, right? New housing estates and such, building the old style. So it can be done. Um, it's just people always just jump to the utilitarian, right? So it's just it is just an interesting point. But if we can get everyone yep. thinking outside the profane, because it's the only way you're going to be able to defeat a machine because they're the expert of the machine. Yes, we have to exact how the machine works and use the machine, but they are really, they've got all the levers. They are becoming inefficient though, of course, because their religion is making them deeply inefficient. So we need to, I feel that we need to offer more than just the utilitarian other option, um, you know, to draw yes. people, the sacred beauty as well, not just here, you can make money here, but here we actually are imbued with something that's greater um, and actually has these attunements. Like I say, it's not just a spin. It's not just me. It's not just a brief on a document. It's that when you come here, you will feel it, right? Because of the way we design things, because of the way we operate, and it'll be imbued in the very structure of the buildings that we operate in. And you'll feel it when you come. And that's what we're going towards. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting because you think about uh, attraction as an example and what are machines best at is they're best at optimizing for that very short-term addiction, right? The TikTok algorithm knows how to keep you engaged. It, it, it's the best It's the best in the world at keeping you engaged for another 60 seconds and another 60 yeah. seconds. Uh, that's in some ways one of the basis kinds, whereas the uh, the attraction of sort of mm. the gravity of the, the attraction that of the sacred uh, that you get in a church service is categorically different. I think that there's mm. also a sense in which the longer your time horizon, the the more you inherently move out of something that's purely utilitarian, or at least in a consumeristic sense. Like even if you're talking if you're talking about a 50 year investment, building a building that's still going to be around in 100 years, uh, yes, you can sort of do a utilitarian calculus of well, if you compound at this rate or whatever, it's going to make this much money. Uh, but really, if you're living for the moment. Uh, what does that even do for you? That's inherently, it only matters if you're trying to pass something on to future generations. There needs to be an element of a good that's higher than just your own consumer enjoyment, your own your own consumption uh, to justify that, which points towards something transcendent. And it it can be rooted in sort of that purely biological caring about your your progeny. But I think it's, uh, it, it's, and it, especially in a world like ours, where that is not an instinct that is, that's an instinct that is in many ways been uh, removed from us. Uh, it's going to accompany something inherently that, that is transcendent. Religious, uh, religious people have more kids. Uh, we care more about the future. They seem to be uh, fundamentally uh, intertwined and uh, certainly having kids at the, Having kids is one of the most fundamentally, it is something that is a rejection of the sort of momentary uh, consumerist enjoyment uh, in favor of a legacy, in favor of something long term, in favor of raising people who are going to be around uh, around 50 years after you die, potentially, or, or 30 years after you die. Right. So there uh, I I think that goes with that mindset, uh, that idea of a society that is uh, is reproducing and growing. Uh, goes with the question of is our society building things for future generations? Are they investing for future generations? And that's inherently, uh, it, it goes beyond individual utilitarian arguments. Yeah. Another thing that um, that comes to mind is 
getting people, perhaps capital that is of a, dist- a personality distribution that's conservative, I, I mean, in terms of, you know, but basically biologically, right? Getting that capital more comfortable with the weird weirdness or the that is on the on the distant right, right? The people that come from media like I do, uh, even people like yourself are more like the risk taker distribution, right? You're more creative. You're not the normal type of, of conservative. Uh, you 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 are obviously you are like you said disagreeable. You've been in investment but business. It's not like a person that is uh, you know uh, sort of you're an entrepreneur type. You have the distribution of of openness but also disagreeability that sort of thing, right? So. How do we get people, other uh, the conservatives, the VC or money, comfortable though with more experimental ideas? Because if we're going to win, we're going to have to be open to the people that have uh, this distribution, that have the strange ideas that, or even just say experimental funds, right? Because there's so many great people you see on Twitter emerging uh, and projects emerging that I see. I say, oh, that would be such a. I'd fund that. I, I'd fund that just to see what he was going to do with it. You know what I mean? But it, it seems like it's hard sometimes. I know this is a consistent problem, actually. It's not just my speculation. Uh, getting uh, those of the conservative distribution to put money into uh, media um, like, say, the left does. It's just, it's, it's a, I think people have talked about that they're starting to come around as things get worse and realize how important the experimenting and the culture, culture is. So have you thought about that? About uh, Do you have a procedure for that? Uh, yeah. It's a challenge. It's a it is a big challenge because I think that right now it's associated with it's it's associated with risk taking uh, and experimentation. I think it's it's very different in a society that values in a society that values uh, these long term investments, building a building that's a beautiful building. Uh, someone with a conservative disposition, mm-hmm. it's a natural place for someone with a conservative disposition to give money, uh, whereas. I think in some sense, the fact that our movement has been that the right left has been primarily associated with conservative versus liberal uh, means that we're primarily populated with people who are naturally not that sort of risk taker. Uh, I think that's changing in some sense. The new right or the dissident right, as you say, is attracting a lot of people with more liberal disposition, uh, a more open disposition. And I. it's going to be more of a battle, not over do we want to stay the same and and just conserve things, or do we want to uh, pr- progress toward the progressive vision, right? But we actually have a very different vision of where we should progress. Uh, we uh, we are not just trying to conserve things, but we're actually trying to promote an alternative, positive vision. And I think once we have meaningfully. Uh, as we do that more and more, as we build a movement that's more and more oriented toward that, you end up with a lot more people who may not have thought of themselves as conservative. You see a lot of these people in Silicon Valley. They may not have thought of themselves as conservative, uh, but they certainly don't like the vision the left is promoting, and they do like the vision that people on the right are promoting. Uh, And and they're drawn to it not just because it's uh, right, but because elements of it are bold and ambitious and aspirational and attractive. Uh, and as that happens, I think you'll end up with with a lot of people, even on the investment side, who, again, uh, may be comfortable taking bigger risks with their investments, but uh, they're, they're oriented toward doing that. In many cases, I think it'll be new people who are probably the leaders on this. Uh, this is why we're getting into uh, venture investing, is I think that we can take those early risks. And then there's a lot of people who may be 
temperamentally more conservative inv as investors, uh, they're not going to be the first making this move. Uh, but as the space develops, as as people like us take the lead on it, they'll certainly be comfortable following and they'll see the traction, they'll see the trajectory. It'll get to the point where a more conservative investor can analyze the traction and analyze the numbers, for instance. And uh, and it'll be an attractive fall on investment. It'll be something that both makes sense from a business standpoint to an investor who may not be uh, a natural venture investor. And it also makes sense as something that uh, they would like to see this succeed. Uh, I think there'll be a sense in which foundations, there's actually an opportunity to educate foundations who fundamentally have a purpose that's more charitable anyway, on how they can take risks with their money, which again, may be outside the sort of comfort zone of a uh, primarily conservative investor. But these, these foundations are actually used to taking, uh, in a sense, bets to achieve something with where they give their money away. And there's opportunities for them to uh, invest their money in ways where you uh, you get them into a zone where maybe they're taking risks that they wouldn't normally uh, aim for on the investment side, uh, but they recognize uh, th they recognize this is actually a bet to advance their 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 broader mission. So there's pools of money that, again, the principles may be fairly conservative in their national investment style, uh, but they have missions that are aligned with moving the ball forward here. Uh, I, I think you also just have a lot of people. I mean, Dallas, I think, has a lot of these people. They are comfortable taking bigger bets, uh, but they're they're comfortable doing so in in industries that they know. So energy, there's a lot of people who are energy investors. And I think they can sit down with someone over a lunch and if it goes well, they may take a $5 million, $10 million risk on the basis of that uh, energy, real estate, things like that, that they know. There's still a bet being made. There's still a sort of experimentation. They just they just haven't built the expertise to do that in the venture space and in some of the spaces around the arts. Uh, that can be learned. I think a lot of those people are eager to see this emerge. And as, again, as they can come in maybe alongside other people uh, who have some sophistication there, uh, they can apply that same uh, judgment, that same, that same ability to sort of size up a person, size up an opportunity fairly quickly, and then make a bold bet on it. They can apply that to things that... Uh, that are a new domain like venture investing. So I think it's a process of education. And to some extent, it's a process of actually moving people who may not have, uh, they may not have been part of the right when the right was seen as conservative, uh, but they're certainly part of the right when the right is uh, a bold alternative, positive vision to the left. I think it's important too for even conservative uh, people that are watching this is that a lot of these the people I'm talking about they're people that have reasoned their way into their understanding of things. They're, they've, they're more traditional than often the conservatives are, right? Because they're radical traditionalists, right? They're reactionaries and such, right? So uh, there's a, a Dave, um, the distributor, has a channel. He's someone that comes from computer science, right? But, and he's a complete reactionary. He wants a, you know, wants a king, essentially. Uh, you know, it's that Curtis Yarvin type, that mm -hmm. the dark elves, as he calls them. So these are people that are coming over, but it is important to realize that also conservative people realize that, oh, they're not because we don't really want the so much the progressives. We that's that um just think about it, conquest law. We've got to be careful of conquest law. You bring these yep. uh liberals in that haven't converted over to a reactionary way of thinking that so they just want to have their uh liberalism but just be in a safe place and protected by the conservatives. And then they just pull everything to the, to the right. So, I mean, what, firstly, what, insulating, that's another insulation problem. How do you deal with that? 
And the well, other so thing I would is, argue that I, jump in. I would say, I would say conquest law is actually not, it's probably not driven by people who necessarily have a liberal temperament. Even my thesis on conquest law is it actually comes from essentially the incentives of the professional managerial class. So in a world where, in a world where the dominant status hierarchy is controlled by institutions like Harvard, I, uh, Harvard and a, a a left-leaning media, for instance, then the entire hierarchy of incentives uh, for professionals, for managers, is to uh, is set by institutions that have a leftward bias. Uh, mm. What it takes to essentially, uh, w- w- what it takes to rise as a college administrator is in many ways determined by a standard that's set by these elite institutions. So if you're a Christian college, uh, you're still taking your cues. You're still, in many cases, operating. Those people, those administrators, are operating within a profession, so to speak, uh, loosely uh, these days. I think, uh, but they're operating within a profession whose standard uh, standard is set by those on the left. And the point is, it doesn't matter. Uh, those aren't those aren't necessarily political radicals. In many ways, administrators, I think, are sort of temperamentally, sometimes somewhat conservative, even, but. They follow the incentives set by their profession, and that uh, that causes them to draw their institutions to the left. It causes them to sort of gatekeep on the right and uh, always consider what they're supposed to consider on the on the left. And uh, and I think that moves things. So to me, it's not necessarily the sort of temper the, the radicals who come in. I don't think that using let's say churches as an example. I don't think denominations move to the left when I. Uh, I don't think conservative denominations move to the left when some left-wing radical comes in as much as it is when it's often someone who uh, fundamentally uh, operates within this sort of mainstream uh, professional uh, world and wants to uh, wants to stay within that and and follows the value system set by that. So, uh, not to say we don't need to gatekeep on that, but I think that the main thing is. We need our own independent status hierarchies more than anything, so that the sort of temperamentally conservative people, the the people who are just sort of following the incentives in many cases, almost sort of apolitical people, so that the apolitical administrators, uh, or less political, less political than you and me, uh, operating within our uh, operating within our uh, institutions, uh, don't feel that sort of. Uh, tug pulling them in the other direction. Uh, so that, that was a little bit of an aside, but I think it's a uh, it's no, important no. word. So I think that the often mm-hmm. the sort of people who come over uh, who are sort of more open, right? I mean, these days, sort of that openness actually correlates with an acceptance of a new paradigm of right wing mm-hmm. ideas that are more than just uh, they're more than just move back twenty years, but they're actually uh, a new way of looking at the world. Like those people are open. Uh, they're often open to uh, much more thoroughly right-wing ideas uh, than traditional mainstream conservatives. And those are the ones we want. The question, and this is also why I think it will be anchored by Christianity to a large extent, is ultimately Christianity does set a standard, it's an absolute standard, that is uh, firmly distinct from the vision of the left. And so there is an anchor not just to being a sort of dissident or whatever, not just to, uh, not just to, uh, enjoying sort of enjoying flirting with new ideas or even sort of enjoying the aesthetics of the right potentially, but there's actually 
a, a moral ethical standard, as I talked about on the sort of Protestant theology, a sort of robust tradition that can help uh, shape how we think about uh, a lot of uh, timeless questions uh, in many, many different uh, paradigms. And ultimately, if, if, the, if uh, that helps shape the leaders of a movement, that's going to help anchor the incentives in a direction that is going to be uh, thoroughly different from the uh, dominant progressive left today. Provided, though, that it is a anchored Christianity, because as we know, the CIA's penetrated, they, they, they penetrated the uh, Catholic Church long ago, right? And they've been liberalizing it on purpose. They've, they're even having a go at the Orthodox Church, as Jay Dyer articulates so well. Um, so the Orthodox Church of America, they haven't got to the other side of it, the Romanian, the Russian Orthodox, right? So there are two sides of this thing. And they have a procedure they operate. They, they're running on old manuals. You can look at the manuals. And he's proven right again and again when he talks about that. So I do think that's important to remember because it depends on, the, on, on which, right? Because if you have a, because that, that liberalism, uh, that uh, degenerating is an operating procedure that's just always underway, Um I think when you say that, I do think that it has to be something that is just people are mindful of, like two pronged. I yep. think that the elite need to be mindful that there are people coming in. There needs to be some structure of uh, reinforcement where they're, you know, they're because they'll convert over. Most people, like you said, they're open anyway. They will convert over, but it needs to be understood that it will drift to, to a certain side uh, rather than just leaving it alone. Um, and also, like I mentioned, you can trick Christianity as well. So it is something that, um, yeah, just I think procedurally people have to be wary of. It'll, the attack will come from both the top and the bottom. And so if, if the elites are aware of that um, in the structure and there's a procedure to deal with it, it should probably be okay. I, just, I don't think you can just de uh, throw it out uh, as a risk is what I'm saying coming from absolutely you know. no 100 percent. and you the, the, certainly the last thing you would do is hand it over to the christian denominations and say well the yeah. denomination uh, certainly they can trick christians and they can mm. they can subvert christian institutions there's no question of that so it's not a matter uh, it's not a matter of assuming uh just because someone's a christian they're right wing or assuming the denomination is going to be uh aligned with the right i think it's uh it, it, i would say it's sort of distinctly right mm. Uh, I would also say if it's both distinctly right and it's anchored to Christianity, yeah. that's going to help. That's going to help anchor. Uh, yes. That's going to help anchor in very important ways. Uh, there's going to be a lot of attempts to attack that. And part of why I'm so focused with American Reformer on the church is because I think that mm -hmm. we need to uh, reclaim those institutions uh, yeah. and or build new uh, a new movement of people who truly are. Uh, they're drawn to both of those factors. Well, I think that's uh, heartening because if it is explicitly right and all of those things on the Christianity, then that will be implicit throughout the whole organization. When people join up, they're going to know that. It's going to say explicitly right wing, whatever it's grounded, uh, grounded in right wing Christianity, whatever it is. So I think that'll help a lot with people coming in. They know what they're getting into. Um, yeah, so that might, makes a lot of sense. So, well, what, would, what advice might you give to people that are coming up then? Sort of young people that are, want to get into business or get into this space, um, both in business or even people that are talented, whatever it might be, artists, uh, talented, um, I don't know, 
technicians or any of these people that have these crafts that would be useful, what are the range of skills that are useful for this thing that you're building? Is it everything or is there a sort of, uh, yeah, advice and then the range of, of skills that uh, are useful for this? Parallel I think it's all. Of, I think it is. It is a broad range. We need to build new institutions, uh, new cultural sh culture shaping, uh, economically uh, effective institutions across uh, many domains. Uh, I, I I would hesitate to probably try to give too much practical advice in the arts, just because I'm not myself a master yeah. of that, and it's it's a very very tough space. Uh, I think it's a very competitive space. Obviously, it's a space where. Uh, it's, it's a space where there's often sort of horrible political dynamics present. So well, uh, what about I, entrepreneurial types then? Let's just say yes. entrepreneurial types and education. What, what, what would you advise them to do as they're coming up in this space, perhaps with education and then making their first moves into this stuff? So I would say one is I would typically avoid debt. And I, I would actually apply that to everyone. I think debt is something that heavily constrains us uh, effectively, that is what our educational system does. Is largely, it turns people into debt mm -hmm. slaves, forcing them to work for, uh, forcing them to work for institutions that are extremely hostile to them. They they need that salary, even though that institution is ultimately uh, going to discriminate against them, not going to give them the kind of opportunity that I uh, maybe would have been promised uh, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. I saw this at law firms where uh, it was sort of promised an eight year partner track and. I would say it looks like more to 10 to 12 year partner track. And if you're a white male, then yeah, increasingly it's just not an option at all. I, uh, mm. or uh, far, far fewer people are going to get that option. So that makes, that makes the sort of incredible sacrifices made in that run up, just an incredibly attractive, op unattractive option. Uh, how do you avoid that? You avoid that by putting yourself in, by, by making choices. You choose the lower ranked school with the scholarship, for instance, uh, over the higher ranked school uh, with the debt. Uh, there's exceptions to this, but as a general rule, uh, that's going to give you more opportunity and more options. I think that uh, choose, uh, it, it, it's not necessarily bad to spend some time in these elite institutions in Wall Street. If you if you get that opportunity, if you have, have a school that uh, gets you into that, uh, that can be great. You're learning some valuable skills uh, but I think the sooner you're building, and it can be networks while you're there, and it can certainly be be a move. The sooner you're building uh, social capital, uh, yes. Sooner you're yeah. building skills that are going to be durable outside of that world. Social mm -hmm. capital that's going to be durable outside of that world uh, with with networks and people who are aligned with you. Mm -hmm. uh, the more robust those are going to be, the more valuable those are going to be. Uh, I think things like I. Uh, recognizing i think skills that allow you to survive in a world in in turmoil is useful i think certain sort of uh jumping into uh certain types of uh business roles that require you to proactively figure things out a lot of professional jobs are a little more like they're not that distinct from taking tests in school mm. uh you, you spend a lot of years in school studying and learning to take tests and answering the tests well and rising and then you go into jobs at large, heavily structured professional firms where, again, the output is not that dissimilar from taking tests. Whereas I think uh, entrepreneurship is much more about uh, a much more open playbook and figuring out how to make good decisions, figuring things out, figuring out how to get things done, figuring out how to make something happen where it's not going to happen without you. Uh, that's a skill set that you learn by doing. And uh, whether it's taking a job, let's call it instead of 
maybe instead of getting an MBA, let's say you learn some finance skills and then you take a uh, director of finance job at a smaller company or whatever, and you're working with them, you're uh, a, those jobs don't typically require the elite degrees, don't require as much debt as a result. Uh, they can build great business skills in a very different context. Uh, in many ways, I think better business skills than you would get going to McKinsey, for instance. Again, can be valued as spending a few years at McKinsey, certainly. Uh, but for a lot of people, I would say if they uh, if they build up the skills associated with owning and running a small business, that's a valuable skill set. Uh, as a lawyer, I would say uh, be more entrepreneurial, right? Don't uh, learn to maybe go to the plaintiff's side. Uh, learn to get comfortable, live a lifestyle that allows you to take uh, contingency risk on plaintiff's cases, plaintiff's tort cases, Uh figure out how to find clients, uh, often smaller clients, uh, certainly not the sort of prestige corporate general counsel clients who aren't going to hire you anyway, again, because of the same sort of uh, checkbox factors, uh, diversity DEI factors. Uh, find clients who, uh, I think if you build businesses that are, they're not, and they're also not even dependent on donations. If, if you figure out how to find clients, represent them, uh, take a risk on them, uh, win, bring in money, that's 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 an entrepreneurial skill set that means you're no longer cancelable or fireable. Uh, I I would say apply that across across sectors, and the more you can sort of tend toward that personal risk taking, taking ownership of every aspect of your success. You're you're not dependent on external institutions. You're not dependent on the good graces or the the blessings of those. You're not dependent on sort of a a complex network of of people alongside you. Uh, that makes you more robust in a time of of turmoil and, and paradigm shift. Uh, yeah, and I would say that's those skills are going to be valuable uh, in your career, and they're going to be valuable in uh, they're going to be even valuable if you switch careers. Uh, yeah. And so that's as I said, like that's an entrepreneur. That's not even a sort of uh, really edgy entrepreneur running a law firm or something. But it's but it's economic ownership of something. It's taking entrepreneurial ownership of your career. And then I think if you're talking about sort of starting a venture style business, uh, again, much easier to do if you don't have a lot of debt, uh, much easier to do if you're networked with a lot of, uh, especially if you're talking about one that's leaning right, if you're networked increasing with people who share your values, uh, get them as investors. Again, that sets you up to, uh, you don't have to fear the the, the drop of the hammer of uh, cancellation if you transgress some uh, some bounds of the left. So uh, always building around uh, around those networks, uh, building businesses yeah. sooner you can, in many cases, build businesses that are cash flowing businesses early. Not every business is dependent on the venture model, or even if, even if you do use venture capital, uh, make sure it's a real business. Uh, all of those things set you up for a world where uh, your fate remains in your control more. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned social capital there. I think people underestimate how important that is as part of going to these institutions or whatever it might be, uh, whether you do or not, even in life, is that people f fail to educate themselves in social dynamics itself because your relationships, if you can't convince someone to do something, you're not going to, it doesn't matter how high your IQ is, it's going to be about who you can uh, pitch your vision to uh, in a way that is good communication but also just understanding how to make good friends, how to be uh, likable. And I don't mean that in a way of uh, cynical. I mean, you know, part of that's being a good human, but yeah, just learning how it works to, it's learnable, right? 
but also realizing that those robust uh, trust, high trust over time formed with a, a network of relationships that make you anti-fragile, right? That's that that's and that's what you get when you go to these. Well, it's the start of it. It's like the old boys club. There's a reason why that was a good thing. It built the whole empire, right? Yep. These men's clubs. And we've lost that. I don't know. How do do you have any practices? Do you go to clubs, attend clubs? Has that been an important part of your uprising? Do you have a Navy SEAL team of really reliable chaps that you've come up with? Do you uh, have a, I don't know, are you a member of a cigar club? Because that is a practice, isn't it? It's a practice people can go out and do and can help with that sort of thing. So, so my on the one hand, our team is is people who are very, very committed. Uh, a bunch of guys, very, uh, very aligned, uh, significant skin in the game, very mm-hmm. committed to the success of our movement. I have uh, I have a broader network. Uh, there's a lot of sort of groups that I'm getting to know better and better might be group chats, but when I do these meetups in person, I'm meeting them uh, of people are aligned and building relationships again of people who are aligned and who are drawn to what we're doing. And then finally, I do have, I have several groups uh, here in Dallas where uh, we get together. It's, it's, it's very aligned uh, Christian men and we get together on a uh, typically a monthly basis and do, uh, do socialize and, and talk about a lot of, uh, lot of the things we're talking about here and how to how to uh have influence in society and that's uh that is it is designed to uh revive some of the uh revive what was lost as we lost those fraternal uh fraternal organizations i think that's uh there's no substitute for that and so we Mm. we're very intentional about that and that's a growing group and you can tell there's a hunger for that among Mm. uh among men who uh men who are drawn to they're drawn to the the fraternity and they're drawn to mm. shared purpose with other men. So yes, that is, uh, that's a big part of this movement is bringing that back. Yeah. I think that people need to realize these things are temporal. They're part of your virtue engine. Like you're an engine of virtue. It's built up and that's, that's a, that's a monthly thing or a weekly thing, or even, you know, uh, that's what these things were. They emerged as things and institutions came out of them like the, uh, East India company, right? These mm-hmm. were just a group of chads that started in, you know, in a club. That's how it all began. Uh, and it's the business of men. You don't have to say that, but I'm going to say that. It's the yep. business of men together on their own, away from female company where this stuff begins and it must happen again. Um, part of that is also we have a way of speaking uh, to each other. And one thing I noticed that you've started doing as well, or as you've engaged yourself in this community, which I think is great, because there is this managerial speak that was, like you say, it was a way of people signaling competence from these institutions. You still see this happening right now. I mean, I see you, you jump into it occasionally as well, right? Because it's just a way it still works, whatever. Um, but you've started to use some of the lingo, like friends, right? F-R-E-N-S, mm-hmm. right? So we have our own language that has emerged uh, uh, in this space. So I think just as a comment, I think it's important that getting people more comfortable and understanding that because it's a good way of early gatekeeping, I suppose, as well. And it's just a, language is important. I think it builds value is imbued in language. So when you have the utilitarian managerial speak, which I really I can speak it, this technical technology driven thing, but I'm not a big fan of it, as you can imagine, because I come from a media and writing, that sort of thing. But the value that's imbued in the words is anti-utilitarian. It's got a sort of the, the meme 
culture has a sort of, I don't know, it's a friendliness to it uh, and just a different value structure. So, I mean, you've recognized that because you started doing it, but I think the more we can do it, do that, the more we can build those fraternal bonds, but also a more insular, protected, yeah, just even way of thinking. Exactly. And that goes to, it, it's, it goes to actually preserving sort of a distinct tribal identity. And mm. that going back to my point about the Quakers, their Christian faith would directly lead to this imperative for more trustworthy behavior. But I think the second thing that allowed them to succeed was the fact that it was, it was a distinct uh, subculture that kept them separate from the mainstream currents that would tend to uh, tend to corrupt it. It essentially led to them being a distinct tribe in important ways. And that is that is absolutely key here where all of the dominant mainstream incentives are going to be uh, pulling us uh, in the direction of compromise, as you say, even through the church denominations, right? Not your church membership means that you're you're distinct. The, the, the denominations are, are seeing compromise. The Christian institutions are seeing compromise. The conservative institutions, many of them have gone the way of, uh, uh, well, never Trump was often the first step toward uh, mm. toward fundamentally uh, moving to align with the left on things that matter yeah. today. And uh, language uh, language plays a key role in helping uh, helping establish uh, tribal distinctions. And I think the mm. right uh, the right does need to, uh, especially, especially for those who do rise even within, uh, within establishment institutions, it's a little easier if they're sort of in their own companies and their own mm. cities and everything. But if they're, uh, if they're at Goldman Sachs, if they're spending time there, if they're in government, if they're wherever, mm. uh, the ability for them to, uh, maintain those tribal distinctives is, uh, is extremely valuable to, mm. uh, to in a sense maintain the fork that we need to uh to preserve our values uh despite those headwinds or despite those sort of broad uh broad uh sort of secular winds in society yeah. so no, that's that's one aspect of it i think the other aspect is actually our language is being degraded by the left is another example so as our language yeah. is degraded by the left uh a lot of the words uh no longer communicate information in the way that we need it mm. and to the extent that we can use new language sometimes it's just very plain direct language too right i mean yeah. a lot of times the professional speak is degraded or the professional speak becomes yeah. almost information free whereas just plain i think trump was an absolute master of this uh he didn't use that online lingo uh, but he said things very plainly that very clearly meant something uh, yeah, high information speech. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I think that there's other cases where the online world likewise has developed language that is just uh, capable of communicating concepts that are uh, prevalent in society. There are important concepts mm -hmm. for us to talk about that are not I uh, that th that are not easy to discuss in normal professional speak that they've been uh, they've been expunged from it often very expressly or labeled racist or whatever. They 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 try to anathematize language uh, that even lets us engage what are seen as dangerous concepts. Yeah, I, I great. Great answer. Um, I think one final subject or question is obviously I've worked in America, right? I've got a great love for the place. You know what I think about it in terms of Anglo-Saxonness and, and being a part of its founding. Uh, as a people, I think we're in a world problem. How do we 
can there be transatlantic par uh, partnership on, on this? Um, you know, there are institutions forming in Britain as well. Um, of course, it's an American thing, but it's there's so much talent, I think, in uh, New Zealand, Australia, that are, pa are perhaps a sort of a press there that could be used. Um, if they've got capital or if they've got great things, they could be useful to bring over. Is there a way of doing that? I know there's, of course, there's visa systems, talent visa. I was on a talent visa when I was in the US. Yeah, I don't know if you've thought about that because you've got enough American talent, I suppose. But it does seem to be a problem we've always all worked on together to try solve, right? You've got these big figures, Paul, Joseph Watson. We, they, it bats well above its average in terms of audience size for these British media people. And these Australian media people, right on the right, they don't perhaps uh, have the organisational funding as much in, in uh, the geography they're in, but just as useful for the fight, right? So I don't know. What do you think about that? Probably I don't know if it's ever crossed your mind whether you want to recruit Anglosphere talent from other countries, but um, yeah, I'm just curious about that. So I, I've certainly thought about this, and I think that. There's absolutely an element in which most, many, many dissident movements have had uh, international partnerships. I think it's actually a, it can be a key part of this. I mean, I think of just to use one example that's uh, that's even broader than this. A American software company is going to face far more pressure to cancel us than a uh, European software company. Uh, mm -hmm. In many cases, the European company even if it's not more ideologically aligned is just not going to be as concerned about a newspaper. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're able to, let's say, let them, well, let's say we're able to take software draw on, maybe it's open the open source community over there, draw on that. Uh, they're developing something. There's not as concerned with what the American media says is sort of dangerous about it. So uh, that's now that's Europe has a there's a sense in which I think the EU is is often going to be even more aggressive at cracking down yeah, on things. Yeah. But uh, th there's an element in which I think almost all of this political oppression uh, remains a lot of it remains concentrated within a national uh, boundary. The US is sort of uh, pretty expansive at trying to project its uh, its uh uh, norms around the world, and ultimately, it's uh, <laughs> it's totalitarian. It uh, totalitarian atheism is their religion. Yes, right. but I think as in global American empire. But yeah, yes, that's the exactly. lingo. So there's there's that global general. American empire, but the global American empire remains strongest in many ways within America. Now, yeah. there's certain aspects yeah. where it remains more vulnerable within America. So I think there's a huge value to international partnerships. There's also areas where different countries may different skills, different capabilities may rise up in different countries. I think Hungary is a great example of one that is particularly popular on the right because it shows an example of a regime that is clearly resisting. That's clearly Western, but it's clearly resisting uh, the global American empire uh, norms and trends. So it shows that an alternative is possible. And that's uh, that's a major threat to progressivism, uh, which talks about the sort of inevitable arc of history. And that's one reason they're so opposed to it. Now, that's that's a little different than bringing people from Hungary here. But just the the existence of it, the chance to engage with them, the chance to feature them as this is is valuable for our movement. I think different countries develop uh, they're likely going to develop different institutions and those institutions potentially can branch. Uh, they'll develop capabilities that can then branch across national boundaries uh, where where we have very similar values and concerns. I, 
In terms of media figures specifically, uh, it, it's certainly something that I think is is interesting, and it, it is going to it is going to happen. Uh, there's there's a sense in which obviously people on the right do have a, a tended to have a little bit of love of their homeland, so I think there's going to be a little more of a natural bias toward uh, toward doing so at home. I think the arts is an area where uh, uh, the culture is certainly a little bit broader. So I, I absolutely think in the arts you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of creation, a lot of film, let's say that crosses boundaries there, and that's that's a very interesting space. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what the the thing ultimately shakes out to look like, I'm not. Uh, I will say I'm not absolutely certain that the nation state is going to be the dominant form of organization. Now it could be smaller subnational units. Uh, it could be it could just be a weaker nation state and and stronger federalism, let's say. Uh, but it could be elements of this certainly do cross uh, cross boundaries too. So I uh, I certainly I think. Conservatism has this uh, th- this natural uh, favoring and love of the local of the uh, yeah. uh, of those who are your own in important ways uh, that that don't lead to an inherently global outlook. Uh, but we have many commonalities with uh, just as we have commonalities with uh, other Western countries, with Christians and other places. We have particular commonalities with other Anglo countries, and so there's going to be a lot of especially on the culture side, I think, crossover oh, yeah. between those. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, of course, that's that is the founding uh, uh, way of being is from that place. So naturally, um, especially the people that are traditional, if you are looking for that, then that's that's really your... Um, look, it's, it, the scenario in America is difficult, right? Because you've just got so many different cultures now together over there. Um, but fundamentally, yeah, if you're if it, a vision in the direction of a European nation, um, it does make sense. Um, also, it's about solving the problem in America as well. I think if you can't do it there, it's just going to always be infecting the English-speaking media. It's always going to be broadcasting out, infecting all the other countries, right? So I think it's important as uh, for the rest of the Anglosphere, let's say, to be a part of that uh, battle. Um, but yeah, I've got, naturally, people want to spend their resources at home but I do think there must also be, as there already has been, with people collaborating like uh, Paul Joseph Watson with um, Alex Jones, right? This stuff is that that's part, these partnerships have already been uh, uh, existed. And like you say, there are opportunities of also perhaps taking advantage of movement to escape one state's law to operate somewhere else, right? That's useful. Yes. To Legal move across jurisdictions. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's that's something that anyway, I'm sure you like you're saying you're thinking about this sort of stuff. That law comes up a lot, I'm sure. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, no, I'm very absolutely. I think that's going to play a role in different spaces. I said it's sort of America has a particular tendency to try to impose its its law on others. But naturally, uh, you can easily see a scenario where people uh, come to America because we do retain stronger free speech, uh, legal free speech protections. I. Uh, than they do in some of these other countries. You can imagine one where uh, it, it's safer for us to build uh, build a business perhaps that has some mm-hmm. geographic diversity because uh, even where it's not sort of an explicit uh, legal uh, censorship or whatever, there may be uh, th- there may be ways that institutions mm-hmm. that are stronger in one domain, like within the U.S., could be 
uh, could be used to harass this. So I think there's there's certainly aspects of uh, of of legal and political arbitrage. There's certain certainly aspects of uh, of uh, drawing on culture where there's a, there's an appeal across boundaries and there's there's elements of I think seeing examples in in certain places that conserve inspiration and in others and uh, you've seen this I think in uh, in in many political movements in history and I I expect it will remain a significant component of ours and uh, it's certainly something that I'm uh, open to and uh, friendly to and sort of looking looking for opportunities there even as even as I would say, sort of the, the people I'm ultimately focused on serving remain uh, yeah. primarily those who are uh, who are in my nation, in my country. I think it's worth thinking about for future conferences and that sort of thing, not just uh, on uh, ideas, but also on business. Right. Just having people yeah. come out just to talk. Right. Um, I know that's something I, I, I'll be interested in being. You know, I know people over there, so I'd be interested in being involved in that. And I can you know, there's people I can introduce you to that would be uh, useful for that sort of thing that have uh, similar but more cultural institutions here. So I do think it's a conversation that should continue. Um, but yeah, that's about it. That's all I've really got, um, Nate. Is there anything else you want to describe or talk about? Well, I appreciate or... that. That's absolutely, mm. that That sort of partnership is exactly the kind of thing that I, I mean, and look at this, you're sort of brokering, you've already you've already introduced us to people uh, mm. who are, uh, you've, you've introduced me to other Americans, right? So you're already help, bro helping broker something Back here, you've also introduced me to uh, to people in the UK who are likely useful collaborators. So uh, th there's a lot of opportunity for sort of trust to be brokered across borders yeah. too. And that's that's sort of, in many ways, the fundamental, uh, one of my ideas, one of these ideas is that media, trusted media figures, uh, trusted independent media figures can be among the sort of pillars of trust that remain that are able to then broker uh, broker alternative trust-based networks. So that is, uh, I think that's a good way to sum it up. That that ties in the media, it ties in the the trust, and and ultimately, how do we how do we build and leverage that into alternative uh, commercial and financial networks? And that's uh, that is in many ways the central uh, mission that I am focused on. That is the aspect of the movement that I feel like is my my vocation and my calling.